Welcome, folks. This is the Leadership Hour with Steve Adubato and my colleague, Mary Gamba. And if you've been following us on a regular basis here on AM 970 every Sunday at 2 and sometimes 2 p.m., sometimes the time gets changed because there's a big football game or a sporting event because AM 970 has the great events. And so you just check us out at different times. Or mm -hmm. if you happen to miss us yes. live on the radio, on AM 970, you can check us out through our podcast, right? Absolutely. They can check us out through our podcast on Apple, iTunes, and Google Play. And you could also find out more information about Steve and his book, Lessons in Leadership, which is a great, great book at stand-deliver.com. And for real-time live updates of everything great that we are up to, you can follow Steve on Facebook, Steve Adubato, PhD, that is A-D-U-B-A-T-O, as well as on Twitter, Steve Adubato. To that end, uh, Mary mentioned, uh, by the way, a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by our longtime colleague and friend, Gil Medina, who is the head of the Department of Commerce in the state of New Jersey a while back. He is a top executive in the real estate field. He knows his business and he's a great leader. Gil will join us in just a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit about communication. I know we talked about this is the leadership hour, but I started my career coaching people on presentation skills, public speaking, executive presence. So much of my work in leadership development as a coach and doing seminars and one-on-one -on -one coaching and my books really talk about communication. I'll, I'll be more specific. So Mary and I have developed a philosophy and approach to teaching and coaching public speaking, presenting, in a way that it's less about I have a lot of information to give you I'm going to dump this information on you. I call it a one-way street. I driving down the street mm -hmm. with a bunch of information on this dump truck, and I'm going to dump it on you. And hopefully you'll get some of it. Hopefully it'll be really of some value. And if not, I don't really care because I'm, quote, trying to get through this presentation. Now, you may say, why am I looking at it that way? Well, after, let's say, close to 20 years of coaching a lot of folks around presentation, they say things like, I just want to get through this. I've studied my material. I know all the things I want to say, and I hope I remember everything I have to say, and then I'm just going to get it out there as quickly as possible and talk really fast like this. And I'll say, well, what about your audience? What do they want? What do they need? What's the message you want to get across to them? And they're looking at me like, why are you asking me all these questions? I just want to get through this thing, this presentation, because I don't like doing it. And I say, well, you're the COO, you're the CEO, you're the chief finance officer, you're the vice president of this, the head of that. You want to start your own company. You want to get out there in the marketplace, but you don't like speaking to other people. I would say that's a mismatch. My view, our view of public speaking is, even though I'm on a monologue right now and ranting, <laughs> it's about a two-way street. I truly believe that you have to make a connection. One of our books, Make the Connection. Is about connecting with your audience, engaging, my favorite word, engaging your audience, getting them to feel a part of what you're doing. So it's less about you standing up there, <laughs> I got to get through this presentation, and more about can you pull them in? Can you tell them an anecdote, a story? Can you ask them a question that gets them thinking? Even if you answer the question. Can you actually pull them out and say, excuse me, young lady in the front, Mary, Mary, is that your first name? Mary, let me ask you, what's the number one 
leadership challenge you face today and someone says, well, why would I do that with Mary? Why would I ask her name? I don't even know her. And she tells me, and I know that she's a leader somewhere, and I ask her a number one leadership challenge or the number one leadership lesson she's learned. Why would I do that if I'm the one, quote unquote, making the presentation? I'm preaching to the choir because I'm talking to you, Mary, but Mm -hmm. why would I do those things? Why would anyone? Well, what's fascinating, and it's almost like you were reading my mind, I was just about to say in the many, many segments that we've done of this show, Steve Autobato's Leadership Hour with Mary Gamba, you've never actually said to me, what is the greatest leadership lesson that you've learned? And that just hit me. And playing role playing right there, I felt like you were asking me that question. So I'll answer it. And when I first started working with you 18 years ago, I was that person that stood up there with my script, I have so much to say, or on the flip side, I had to do it for a project at school or for a previous job. I had to get up and talk about white knuckling it. uh, Oh, yeah. White knuckles, you know, redneck, my, you know, just nervous and shaky voice. And I never viewed a presentation as a conversation. I am so comfortable talking to people in a conversation. I will just pick up a conversation with a guy at Dunkin Donuts. I will find out and know everything about a waiter when we go out to dinner. By the way, you don't mean for any purposes other than to be friendly. Well, it depends. Because you're happily married. I am happily married. Just want to clarify that. It's definitely a lot easier to pick up that conversation if the gentleman's a little bit good looking, but that's not appropriate or necessary for the leadership. No, no, not at all. That's okay. But when I truly listened to what you were saying as my teacher and my mentor at that time, if I began viewing the presentation, whether it was in front of two people or 200 people, as a conversation, I was so much more comfortable. I was so much more myself doing what I know how to do, which is have a conversation. You're a good conversationalist. I am. And literally last night I went to awake and my husband said to me, he goes, you know, we're standing there. And of course, you walk along the line, you go and talk to the person who lost a loved one. And I I noticed there were two T-shirts on either side of the the coffin. And I said to, you know, our friend, I said, what are those T-shirts? You know, what are they for? You know, they've got to have significance. And we must have talked for five, 10 minutes just about what those T-shirts meant to him and his family. And, you know, it was actually for his father. And, you know, we were going to bury him in one of those T-shirts. But then, you know, we wanted to have it for memory. And Bill's like, how can you just go in there and start a conversation at a funeral But that's what I do. I'm good at it. But I never made that transition and connected the dots to say, if I have to do a presentation on any topic, it can still be a conversation. So thank you for that, for giving me that lesson. But explain to folks right now who are, by the way, you're listening to Mary Gamba offering words of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Steve Adubato here. This is the Leadership Hour on AM 970 as well as on our podcast. Brian Brodeur and his team are taking care of all production responsibilities here. But I'm curious. There are people right now who are saying, Mary, that's great that you said that mm-hmm. at the wake, and I'm sure yeah. you made a loved one who was suffering feel better. But what does that have to do with you work in a company, mm-hmm. you work in an organization? Listen, uh, we have a meeting, and you have to make a four-minute presentation on where we are with X, Y, Z. Exactly. What does it have to do with that? It really transitions over. I give presentations to our board of our nonprofit, the Caucus Educational Corporation. We want a broadcasting not-for-profit. Yeah. Exactly. So there's about 20 of us in the room, and I need to talk about a youth leadership and communication program that I oversee. You've been the head of for yeah. over 10 years, right? And years and years ago, when you asked me to do that, I, you know, and you follow down the agenda, and you know that your turn's <laughs> coming up. Were and you yet, getting, how anxious were you getting when I you, was, you were item seven? Oh, my hands the, were all sweaty, and I was started to get red. Did you get the redneck? I did, and you know, I just made Made sure to wear a scarf so nobody saw that I had the redneck <laughs> going on. And then I realized, wait a second, 
again, I heard your voice in my head that said, why don't I engage and ask one of our board members? Like you were there at our big event That's last right. They year. Were, say they were at, we call it the Night of the Eloquence. The Night of Eloquence. They were there at the Night of Eloquence. Yes. The board member, mm-hmm. and I remember, what did you do with the board member? Well, I just asked. I said, "What was it like to be there? Tell us a little bit about what you saw." It's but one hold on, thing it was for your me presentation. Why were you turning it to the other person? Because even for the people that are in there who I didn't draw in, they would rather hear or witness a conversation rather than somebody droning on for forty-five. We did this. We did that. We Ugh. did this. We did that. And then we have five hundred kids. Exactly. We raised this much money. This is our Statistics, curriculum. Statistics. Numbers. Way, they can read that in the book, by the way. Yeah, and, and I like it. I know you're anti-power. PowerPoint, I get that. I like a few PowerPoint slides, just have a couple of visuals to support it. If the PowerPoint slides enhance the conversation, yes. I'm in favor. If mm-hmm. they are just a bunch of stats and you're reading that I could read what it. you're telling me, mm-hmm. I'm asking you why you're insulting me because I can read. Exactly. So once I made that connection between having a conversation, a two-way street, and how that can better the presentations that I'm doing, or if I'm running a meeting, or in any situation, it works. And it's fascinating. Doesn't it take relax. practice, though? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm still not as great as I would like to be because I don't practice it as often. I don't have as many opportunities to speak in front of groups. Hmm. But when I do, I always make sure I take a deep breath and I say, this is a conversation. You know, I used to always try to say the thing, oh, they all want me to succeed. And, oh, imagine the audience, you know, in their underwear or whatever. Not a good idea. To... Trust me. No, because there are some people you cannot no, see imagine. in your mind. It, nothing good's going to happen. But yeah, so once I, you have That's to That's a trick, by the way. It is. It's, it's a not trick. A, it's actually, it's interesting. What we're talking about, mm-hmm. engaging your audience, is not a trick. It's a philosophy. It's an approach. Mm-hmm. It's frankly grounded in something much deeper. Think about this. When you ask people the question, would you rather be in a conversation than have someone present information to you, the answer is clear. Mm-hmm. I'd rather be in a conversation. Oh, yeah. So then my clients, our clients, will say, well, how do I do that? Now, you said- you pulled somebody in who was on the board and happened mm-hmm. to be at an event that we had. Okay, that's great. That's courageous. Mm-hmm. But I've also told people one of the ways to engage your audience, and by the way, take this down if you're taking notes listening to the Leadership Hour. And if you want to find out more, you go on our website because mm-hmm. I've written extensively about yeah. the art of engaging your audience. By the way, Mary, the website is? Stand-deliver.com. And you can type in any communication issue, and we have free articles and resources, tips and tools. Yeah, so to that end. I know many of the articles in a chapter in my book, I believe it's chapter 24 in Lessons in Leadership, talks about great leaders make engaging presentations. Listen to this technique. So simple. You start a presentation with an anecdote. You don't get up and say, I'm here to talk to you about leadership. There are many things about leadership that I'd like to share with you, including my top 10 tips. Okay, let me get my iPhone out. Or you could start the presentation in a more engaging way and say, you know, The other day, we had a situation come up in the workplace, real-life situation. Something went wrong. I was anchoring in one of the programs. There was some technical problem that went wrong. And Brian, actually, I've done this with Brian so many times, Brian Brodeur, who is a leader and a a great artist uh, from a production point of view as well. And I say, you know, we were in the studio or we're out on location. Something went wrong. And I remembered that my frustration was building up. And I responded in a certain way, and I raised my voice, and I started pointing the finger at other people. And, yeah, they got it right. They fixed it technically. But I realized in the course of doing that, there was a lot of roadkill. I realized in the course of doing that, by the time we got it right technically, the mood had changed. The morale was different. The motivation was different. And, yes, people did their job, but I added to the tension, and I added to the negativity, 
and it was a very poor leadership trait. And I sat back and I said, how could I, how should I have dealt with that differently? Mm -hmm. And say I to open with that story. By the way, unfortunately, Brian, this is all too true. It's happened. Well, we've all gotten better at the situation. <laughs> okay, but, but but my point is, say I start with that scenario and I say, how many of you by a show of hands? You're literally doing the presentation. How many of you by a show of hands when something's gone wrong, either in your family or the workplace, have handled it in such a way where you contributed to the problem and not to the solution and your lack of emotional control made things worse? Put your hands up. Okay, I'm, so, I'm sorry, young man. Could you share with us what you did or not? You don't even have to do that. To what degree are they engaged just by you telling a story, not about how great you are, but about a mistake you made that others can relate to? Is that engaging, Brian? Sure. Because? I mean, well, you are making the connection. And that's what humans, that's what consumers, that's what coworkers and team members want. Okay, so then how is that a, quote, leadership presentation if people are saying, well, Steve Adubato's coming or Mary Gamber or Brian Brodeur or whomever? Yeah. The great Tony Robbins, you know, whomever. Well, they're out there to tell you their tips and tools on leadership, so just shut up and listen, write it down, and don't get too involved. What's the difference? Hi, there's not much of a difference. I think that really— No, no, no. What's the difference between someone just saying, I'm going to sit here and shut up and oh, listen to what you're saying they, mm -hmm. versus you start with a story. Right. And what's oh, going on for people? What's difference. going on for people mm -hmm. when you're telling that story? Right. I didn't, I didn't ask the question. Well, go ahead. No, that's quite all right. And I was listening, but I was getting ready to respond to a different question. But yes, the difference is you are making that human connection with the audience if you actually start with a story, start with an anecdote— connect with them on a personal level. And then I ask, hold on, how many of you, by a show of hands, have ever lost control, mm -hmm. not handled it well, let your emotions get ahead of you? Mm -hmm. What are they doing in that moment? In that moment, they are thinking, and you have just pulled them in by not telling them something. You pulled them in and made them a part of what you're doing and got them thinking. And once people feel a part of it, then they're going to listen and learn and, and be more aware and not check out and be on their iPhones or, you know, just drift off, put a to-do list. I'm really good at that. I put a to-do list together if I'm watching a presentation that's fairly not interesting. So I'm always just trying to be productive. But, hey, I'm here for a reason. I really would like to be engaged. So, But if you're not going to engage me, I'm checking out. Exactly. Because I got better things to do with my time. Time is precious. And so here's the thing. There are so many ways we can engage people. We can start out by asking them a question. How many of you have ever, and they raise their hands, and you can call someone or not, but you've mm -hmm. got them thinking. See, the whole idea of engaging people is that they're thinking. Mm -hmm. They're involved. It's not simply they're passive, just sitting there, mm -hmm. and you're going to give them stuff. Now, yes, you have to give them tips and tools. You do. But you have to do it, in my view, in a way that's much more conversational, much more interactive, mm -hmm. and it takes practice. But I'll tell you what, people who say in leadership positions, I just want to get through this, mm -hmm. that's about you. That's about your insecurities, about presenting. I understand your fear. Jerry Seinfeld once said the two greatest fears are death and public speaking. And many people would rather be in the casket than yeah. being the one doing the eulogy. Now, it's a joke. I get it. Mm -hmm. But the fact is... You don't have to give in to that. Right. But it's funny that you say that because I was just going to say that one of the best qualities of a comedian is they know their audience and they do things that the audience will relate to. 
because once you start doing that, if you see you got a lot of moms in that audience, you're going to make some mom jokes. And, you know, you need to connect with your audience. And the anecdote that you use for one audience may not work for another audience. Because, because the first rule of communication is? Is you got to know your audience. You have to know who's in that room and what's going to connect with them. Because if you have a group filled with physician leaders, you may not want to do a more personal, soft connection. It may nope. need to be something that's a little bit more technical. So you a group of physicians. Sorry for interrupting. Steve Adubato, Mary Gamba here at the Leadership Hour with Brian Brodeur as well. So I, we do a lot of physician leadership mm -hmm. training. So I remember starting a, a presentation by saying, okay, look, many of you have been trained in medical school. You're the top top of your class, you're the head of surgery, you are an incredible brain surgeon, whatever it is, oncologist, whatever it is. Now you're the head of the department. You have to run a meeting. How many people by a show of hands have been in a meeting where they say, oh my God, I wish I was any other place other than this meeting? Now they all raise their hands. And then you ask the question, okay, so what's one key to leading a better meeting now that you have to lead meetings? Let's talk about it. What's one thing about a meeting that you would really like and you're calling on people? Yeah. What I'm saying is get them involved. I'm sorry, Mary, for because I'm now I'm on my soapbox. Why don't we do this? Because talking about great communicators, mm -hmm. we're going to go to a quick break. And we come back, we're going to be joined by Gil Medina, mm -hmm. who's not only on the board of the Caucus Educational Corporation, our not-for-profit production company that you and I work in every day, but he's also someone who serves in the highest levels of uh, state government and is an entrepreneur in the world of development. We'll be right back right after this on the Leadership Hour. This is Steve Adubato. Stay with us. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Steve Adubato here. We are pleased to be joined by our good friend Gil Medina, real estate executive and former New Jersey Secretary of Commerce, who has been a leader for a long time. He's been involved in a whole range of uh, business organizations. Gil has been leading, managing, taking care of business for a while. How you doing, my friend? Good, Steve. How are you? I'm doing great. By the way, let me also disclose that Gil Medina is, in fact, one of the most revered board of trustee members of our company, our not-for-profit company, the Caucus Educational Corporation, and has helped lead us through some, let's say, challenging times in the world of public broadcasting, Gil? Absolutely. It has been a real pleasure. It's a great organization, and it does a tremendous amount to bring out issues of great significance to uh, the folks, not just in New Jersey, but in the entire region. And by the way, to that end, Mary, let folks know on the second half hour of the Leadership Hour, what they can catch, produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation. Absolutely. It's State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, talking about key policy and other issues going on in the state and the region. With leaders, in mostly in the world of government. Gil, let me ask you this in the time we have. Where would you say your leadership approach and philosophy has come from? Where was it grounded in your life? I would say that it was with great intellectuals and leaders like uh, Helen Keller, as you recall, Steve, Helen was blind from childhood. A reporter asked her at one point in her life, Ms. Keller, can you imagine anything worse than losing your eyesight? And she answered, yes, losing your vision. So I've always realized that in its essence, leadership is about creating and articulating a clear and compelling vision that others can act upon. Wow. 
Gil, you have Mary and I staring yeah. at each other. Well, thinking, when you mentioned Helen Keller, I wasn't sure where you were going to go with that, Gil. And then obviously you hit a home run. That was an amazing point about the vision versus being able to see. Yeah. And I'm and, a, fa- and she was a go great ahead, go intellectual, ahead. by the way. And sometimes we forget the kind of influence she had in 20th century uh, society. Yeah. By the way, you're listening to Gil Medina, former Secretary of Commerce in the state of New Jersey, real estate executive. Gil, let me ask you this. You're being a leader. You served in, and tell folks what administration you served in in New Jersey. Well, I served obviously in the Women Administration. I also served as a city councilman in the city of Camden, New Jersey. I also, you know, worked on many uh, political campaigns throughout the past several decades. Let me try this. Gil, when did you know that you had the potential? to be a leader and not simply someone who was a doer and a follower. Nothing wrong with that. But leaders are very rare beings. When did you know? Really from the moment that I was a very young child, probably preteen, early teen. Where? I was born in Puerto Rico, but I grew up in the city of Camden, New Jersey. And my initial engagement in politics and leadership was actually as a student radical. And I, I then um, hold on, Gil. You, hold on, wait a minute. You're a Republican, Gil. You went from radical to Republican. <laughs> it was a very, very logical progression. Um, when I went to law school for the first time, I uh, read and studied the uh, American Constitution. At the same time, I was reading Adam Smith's *The Wealth of Nations*, and I also read one of Sigmund Freud's significant social commentaries called *Civilization and Its Discontents*. And basically, in a six-month period, I became convinced that democratic free enterprise has been one of the greatest forces for the improvement of humankind. And the American Constitution has been a very important model for uh, ways that societies can organize themselves to help bring about this tremendous, I think, progress of humankind. Okay, stay on this, though. But you knew that you were going to be a leader because— Because I was able to, I think it's the issue of vision that Helen Keller so well understood. And many others, Paul Valéry, the great French poet, one time remarked about France in the 40s after the war, that the problem with our present times is that our future isn't what it used to be. Hmm. So one of the things that's so critical, I think, not just for leaders, but for organizations, for projects, for nations, is to be able to really have a clear vision of what the future can become. And then what happens is that now leaders and followers, uh, and by the way, leaders often are followers as well, can really now work towards the execution and the realization of this vision. So I think that the reason I knew it is because I tended to be able to live in the future probably more than other people. Okay, let me try this. How would you describe... Steve Adubato here with Mary Gamba. This is the leadership hour. The operative word is leadership. We're on AM 970, The Answer, every Sunday at 2 p.m. And also, Mary, people can check out our podcast. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. They can check out our podcast at Google Play as well as on iTunes. So I want to make this clear. There's so much talk around politics and partisanship, and that's not what this show is. But I am curious because Gil happens to be an active and very respected member of the Republican Party. I'm fascinated by your view of President Trump's leadership style, Gil Medina. To me, I think that our country has really become polarized, and President Trump has been at the center of that process. You know, on the one hand, 
we have this new right that has arisen that President Trump is leading. On the other hand, we have in, uh, this extreme left that's arising with people proclaiming the virtues of socialism and frankly, even communism. And I think the biggest challenge that we're facing today is that the great middle has not been able to establish, reestablish itself. And it's interesting, I'm reading the uh, five-volume history of World War II written by Sir Winston Churchill, one of my idols. Talk about and a great way, leader. Talk about a great of, leader. Talk about great leaders, exactly. And I just find so many parallels between the pre-Nazi Germany and the U.S. today. Really? With the and the fascists pulling the country in extreme directions and the middle just losing control of the populace. Well, then, well hold on, Gil. I, now I need to press you. Given how divided we are, not debatable, right, Mary? Right, that's Given correct. how polarized we are, not debatable, right, Mary? Correct. What kind of leader would it truly take, or could it even... What, is there such a being, a leader, who could, if not totally bring the country together, uh, ameliorate some of this divisiveness and polarization, Gil Medina, former Secretary of Commerce, in the state of New Jersey? Obviously, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I'll tell you why. Because when we look at the challenges that our great generation, our World War II generation underwent, the challenges that they undertook, those challenges were much greater than anything that we're facing today. And they were able not only to endure, but to prevail. And it'll take a leader like Sir Winston Churchill. More recently, leaders like Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, Tony Blair in Great Britain, even Bill Clinton. Uh, With all his flaws. They all have flaws, but I think that in their essence, they were patriots. They were unifiers. They were people who really believed in the traditions and legacy of our country. And I think that's what it's going to take, because if you look at the period of time when President Clinton, then George W. Bush, and then President Obama were presidents, all those presidents were really near the center. You know, some were left of center, some were right of center, but now... You know, the leadership in both parties seems to be at the another end, uh, not at the center. Is there, before I let you go, Gil, do you see a tremendous lack of leadership in Congress and Washington and in the White House? I see a tremendous amount of confusion. I think that it's interesting that a friend of mine uh, spent some time in Washington, and this was right after President Trump was elected, and he had met with a number of Republican leaders. And his comment was that this leadership recognized that the Republican Party had lost the presidential election. So I think that there's bewilderment, but I don't think that there's been a time in recent history where we've faced this type of extreme polarization at both ends. And by the way, for those who believe that the right is dangerous, they should study the history of the left and some of the things that happened in the former Soviet Union, in places mm -hmm. like Cambodia, in China and in many other places. So I think that the danger is from the extreme left and the extreme right. And the danger is when those of us who are in the middle fail to seize the moment to move the political process and the center of power back to the middle where it belongs. Finally, we listened to uh, Gil Medina, former Secretary of Commerce in New Jersey, in a Republican administration, uh, a lifelong uh, in his adult life, Republican. Uh, this is not ideological. It's not political. It is about leadership. Steve Adubato here with Mary Gamba. Mary, the biggest thing I'm taking away from Gil is that being a great leader um, may not always coincide with being the kind of leader who just says what he or she wants to say in the moment 
if, in fact, that's tremendously divisive, even though people say, I like a leader who just says it the way they see it, calls it the way it is, and let the chips fall where they may. And I would say that a true leader has to have the confidence to stand alone, the courage to make tough decisions, the humility to embrace the ideas of others, and the compassion to consider the needs of the less fortunate. And they usually do not set out to be leaders, but become leaders by the justice of their actions and the integrity of their intent. Pretty deep, Mary. Give you 30 seconds on Gil Medina. No, that's very true. I think that the best leaders are open-minded. They definitely learn from history and through reading. And we always say that leaders are lifelong learners. And you can learn a lot from really taking a look at the failures and the successes of former leaders. And it sounds like Gil is definitely doing that on a daily basis. Yeah. And by the way, we're not talking about being politically correct. No. We're not talking about never really taking a stand. Gil Medina, the former secretary of commerce and a real estate executive, our good friend and board member, has given us an awful lot to think about on the Leadership Hour. Thank you, Gil. Appreciate it, buddy. My pleasure. We'll be back right after this. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. Mary, so interesting listening to Gil Medina. He served in the public sector, the private sector, been an entrepreneur, people's paths, Mm -hmm. people's pathways, if you will, to how they get to be who they are, what they are. Again, I I know we've talked about this before. Gil Medina comes from humble beginnings, right? Mm -hmm. Someone says someone's born to be a leader. You don't buy it, do you? I don't. I have always said, and we've talked in the space, and that's one of my favorite questions that we ask the guests that we have on the Leadership Hour is, are leaders born or made? And it's not black and white. It's not as simple. But I do believe that it is to do with the nurture, the bringing up, the you can teach someone to be a great leader. Now, sure, there's some people that are more intrinsic and natural born leaders. But it, it's so important that we take that responsibility on ourselves, not only for our children, but also for the people that work for us. As I continue to coach and mentor the people on our team, mm. one of my biggest goals is, all right, let me give them the skills and the tools. So one day, they can go out and they can be leaders. So I think it's just a really important, not I think, I know, it's an important leadership trait to teach other leaders to lead. That is Mary Gamma. This is Steve Arbano. This is the uh, Leadership Hour. Mary, about two and a half minutes left. Mm-hmm. I've often said that a lot of what I've learned about leadership, and I wrote in the introduction of Lessons in Leadership, and I've said this before on this show, in my book, Lessons in Leadership, I wrote about what I learned from my dad. Rough, tough, aggressive, difficult, challenging, sometimes very harsh leader, but accomplished great things. And I learned how to be a great leader from him and how not to be a leader (laughs) from watching him do things that I thought, wait a minute, I want to do things differently. Did you learn much from your parents about leadership? If so, what? Oh, goodness, I wish we had more time. In short, absolutely. My mom and dad were always the type that worked hard. If there's anything in life that you want, you need to work hard for it. They did not just hand us everything and say, here it is. They taught us how to appreciate the importance of hard work and just really being confident in who you are and what you believe in. But they didn't call that leadership. No, it was never, ever. You and your sister, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, just the two of us and both of us. And again, it's not by accident. We have our stuff together. We know how to put lists together and how to prioritize. Very organized. Very organized. A piece of leadership that is. It is is a huge piece. And time management is a huge piece because if you don't have that, then you're scrambling every day just trying to keep your head above water. So for me, I would say the biggest leadership, and there were so many, but the biggest leadership trait that I took away was that ability to stay organized, stay true to who you are, and everything else will fall into place. And just lastly, that human connection and in caring about others and in really being aware of others. And it's just not all about you. It's what can I do to make the world a better place? Real quick, 30 seconds left. Sorry for interrupting. They also teach you how to get past difficult situations or arguments so that you oh, don't yeah. stay. Never. Never go to bed angry. Uh, it, that was a huge they thing in that? our house. Yeah, my we family, never, every, ever, my ever. parents, everybody went to bed angry. Never. Never go to bed angry. <laughs> Apologize quickly. What? Move on. Yeah. So that's, they taught you that. They did. Yeah. Absolutely. I and wish I had your parents. Oh, yeah. They really they, did. They would adopt you. Yeah. They, they really did that. Yeah, they did that, and it helped because it takes too much energy. I have no energy for drama, and you at really work, don't. and I don't. Just get over it. It happened. Move on, and it's just a healthier way to live. Brian, how long before you think Mary just takes over the leadership hour? I thought she already took over. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Thank you, Mary, for your wisdom. Thank you, Brian, for your expertise. Thank you again to your team on the production side. Brian, this is Steve Adovato. This has been the Leadership Hour. Stay tuned. Right after this, it's going to be State of Affairs that I will be hosting uh, an important public policy program, particularly with so many important leadership issues and challenges and questions that are not just our region, but our nation continue to face. Steve Adovato, catch you next time. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Hi, I'm Patrick Dunnikin. At Gibbons, we believe that citizens need to be informed about the complex issues that affect their lives. That's why we're proud to support the programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation and their partners in public television. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at Two Gateway. Funding has been provided by the law firm of Gibbons PC. St. Joseph's Health, a passion for healing. It's what's inside us. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Valley Bank. NJM Insurance Group, New Jersey Resources, and by International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825. Promotional support provided by Insider NJ, and by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association. Welcome to State Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We're coming to you from the Agnes Varis NJTV studio in Newark, New Jersey. We are honored to uh, have the Honorable Attorney General in the great state of New Jersey, Grabeer Graywall. Good to see you, Attorney General. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Steve. Uh, did you always, when you were growing up as a kid, by the way, where was that? Uh, Jersey City. I was born in Jersey City in Hudson, grew up in Bergen and Essex. Did you say to yourself, I want to be the Attorney General? Uh, no, I think I wanted to be a tennis player or an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I played high school tennis uh, competitively, and uh, I always thought I'd be an athlete, but uh, somehow stumbled into law school. Um, you have a background in law enforcement. You are the first Sikh 
America and to be attorney general of the state, which means what to you and the rest of us? Well, I mean, it's an extraordinary responsibility. Uh, it's, no, it's a great responsibility to be the attorney general in the first place, uh, to be the chief law enforcement officer, but I think it's an added responsibility to be the first in anything. To, to be the first Sikh in this position, I think my mistakes are magnified because they reflect not just on me, but broadly speaking on the Sikh community. And, and then my successes are magnified. If I do this well, I think it, it benefits the entire Sikh community, which is a, a new immigrant community uh, relatively in the United States. And so if I can do it well, I can encourage others to. You, you know, it's interesting. There's a whole bunch of issues I want to talk about. The opioid crisis, mm -hmm. um, dealing with uh, gun control issues, environmental protection, immigration, et cetera. But I, I want to get this one out of the way. Okay. You've been asked a million times. You know where I'm going, right? I'm not sure. Yeah, the radio thing. Uh. So there's two characters on uh, 101.5. Yep. Um, I don't even know their names, and it doesn't matter. So they, they, they think they're being funny, and they make reference to you, and they don't even call you by your name, but they say the guy with, quote, the turban and right. whatever else. And then they sang Turban Man. I didn't even know that part. Yeah. That speaks for itself yeah. in terms of who they are and, and how they see their role as folks in the media. and Everything's supposed to be funny. I still don't get the joke. Mm -hmm. You handled it with class and dignity and just forgave them very quickly once they apologized because... It's, this is part of life for me, Steve. Uh, I have dealt with much worse than two radio hosts calling me Turban Man. Uh, I've, I've developed thick skin over the years, just growing up, looking the way I do, believing the way I do. So for me, I need to get back to work. I need to focus on, on being the chief law enforcement officer, the chief legal officer for this state. But I'll tell you, what bothered me about those two hosts was not how it affected me. What bothered me is that they said that as long as I wore my turban, I wasn't, it wasn't worth remembering my name that they reduce me and by extension everyone who shares my faith to the most visible aspect of our identity. And I think in this moment right now that we're living in, we have to be very careful, those of us with platforms in the media or in government, with the words we use, the words we choose, because we don't know who needs that slight push to go over the edge and to do something violent with somebody or to you know, say it's okay to act out on these types of beliefs. Because you know, when I was a Bergen County prosecutor, I dealt with this type of stuff, and it was on the chat boards and on the comment sections of the... Of hate the, stuff. Yeah, the hate stuff. How but, do you know when it tips over to someone taking yeah. words, because words matter, Yeah. and now they're violent? Well, I mean, I, I think we all just need to be more responsible, because we're seeing it across the country, right? I, I never thought in my lifetime I'd see people, white supremacists, protesting at a college campus, yelling, Jews will not replace us, and carrying torches and then running over a protester and killing her. So I think in this moment, we just need to be responsible. You don't know when it could push that person over the edge, when it could lead to conduct. And, and so that was my concern I'm with that radio situation. On this. I'm sorry for yeah. I promise I'll do the opioid stuff. That's fine. Things. I'm here. Yes, you're the chief law enforcement officer in this state. But to what degree do you worry about, think about, and are concerned about the tone and the tenor of what is being said literally at the highest offices office, singular, in our country out of the White House. And what does that have to do with the conversation we're having right now? I, I, I think it starts from the top, right? I think responsibility has to start from the top, that if we've got to set the tone as people with platforms. And I think when the highest office in our land, uh, the person occupying that seat, is pitting communities against each other, stripping people of their humanity, likening them to cockroaches and, and dehumanizing them to such an extent, it gives other people license to say, you know, maybe it's okay, because I, I see it happening at the top levels and of our if government. the president says I'm a nationalist, that means what to you? He says I'm just being a patriot. You interpret it how? I, I interpret it as legitimizing these folks uh, 
you know, who, who view nationalism as the equivalent of, of, of you know, white supremacy and, and uh, these beliefs that are just bigoted and, and just antithetical to everything we stand for as Americans. Okay. So uh, the governor appoints you. He gives you uh, this portfolio, this mandate to deal with a whole range of issues. Ready to go through some? Yeah, let's do it. The opioid crisis. What is the role of the attorney general's office dealing with a health issue like this? Yeah, I mean, it is a public health issue, but unfortunately, law enforcement is at the front lines of dealing with this crisis. Uh, I started off as a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office right down the street here, and I, I never dealt with the, with the drug crisis from this perspective. We put away large-scale heroin dealers and organized uh, conspiracies to import large-scale quantities of drugs. When I became the Bergen County prosecutor, they gave me a phone, and, and I would get every overdose in the county. I would get every Narcan save in the county, every fat fatal overdose in the county. And so it became very real for me that this was a law enforcement issue because it's our cops running to homes to try to catch somebody before they overdosed fatally uh, to revive them with Narcan, with naloxone. And it was us that, you know, as law enforcement, that were in this cycle of arrest, mm. overdose, Narcan save, trying to run to that next fatality before it, it happened. And so as attorney general, when you have oversight over 30-plus thousand law enforcement officers, I think it's incumbent on us to sort of shift the conversation, that it's not uh, an entirely uh, uh, locking up people with, with the disease. It's trying to get them the help that they need. And that's what we've tried to do at the Attorney General's office by pushing people, low-level drug offenders, into treatment options. We have innovative programs. And we're starting to see some progress. And, and law, law enforcement has bought into this. Attorney General, uh, by the way, we put up the Attorney General's office uh, website so people can find out about, not just about you, but about some right. of the initiatives that you and your team are involved in. Um, the whole DACA thing fascinates me, the whole question of immigration, right. particularly in light of the conversation we just were having. Right. Okay. So there are 15 other attorney, state attorneys general that are suing the Trump administration for what as it relates to this? So we're trying to stand up for our residents. Um, Explain what DACA means to so, those who don't know what the acronym is. So, uh, you know, DACA is a federal program that was stood up during the Obama administration. It's divert, deferred action for childhood arrivals. These are kids who came in here at a very young age through no fault of their own, who grew up here, who have gone to school. They're our neighbors. They're our friends. They're working with us. They're in our society. Uh, and so the program allowed them to come out of the shadows, you know, have some normalcy in their lives and not fear deportation and have some protection to be able to go to school and to thrive and, and to, you know, experience some part of the American dream. So what's the attack on the federal government? So, so this administration has decided that it wants no part of defending DACA, a program that was stood up by the prior administration. So what we've seen, uh, there have been a number of cases out there, um, but I'll give you one example. There was a case in Texas recently where six Republican attorneys general sought the repeal of the DACA program. Since we were not involved as parties in the, any of the other DACA litigation, we went down to Texas and we intervened in that case. We said because the federal government, which was being sued by these Republican attorneys general, won't stand up to defend this program, mm -hmm. we will, because 17,000 New Jerseyans who are DACA recipients are affected by this. And, and we want them to not go back into the shadows, but we want to protect them so they could continue to live their lives as they have been over the last number of years. And so we want a temporary reprieve in that case in Texas. Let's try this. Um, real quick, officer drilling. Again, so many of these items fall into the category of the attorney general's office. I'm thinking, yeah. why? We just had the head of the DEP here, the Department right. of Environmental Protection. What do you have to do with it? 
So, Offshore drilling. <laughs> so, so the way it works is we're the chief legal officer. The DEP commissioner can't bring lawsuits on her own. We have all the lawyers of the state at the attorney general's office. And so we work in concert uh, with the commissioners, with Commissioner McCabe, in figuring out whether policy coming out of Washington or being curtailed by Washington affects New Jersey. And, and that's the number one decision point for us. Right? There, there's a lot of uh, sensationalism, sensationalism in the media about what we're doing at the AG's office, that we're reflexively anti-Trump. That's not the case. We, we You're anti-what, though? We have two questions. Is the policy out of D.C. affecting New Jersey? Right? And if it's affecting New Jersey and it's unconstitutional, that's the second question, or unlawful, then we'll stand up. If it's not affecting New Jersey and it's lawful, then we're not getting involved. In this case, offshore drilling, uh, the Secretary of the Interior, Zinke, gave Florida a pass. We have 100-plus miles of coastline here that we need to protect. What's at risk? Our, our, our livelihood, uh, you know, the, the resources of our shoreline, the economy, the jobs at the shore. You know, if you have offshore drilling, all of that could be negatively impacted. But here's the thing, Steve. Florida got a pass. Why did Florida get a pass? And, and why didn't New Jersey get a pass? And so we sued the administration to find out. We sent a FOIA request to say, hey, what conversations did you have with Florida? And, and why did they get exempted from this offshore uh, drilling program? And why can't New Jersey avail itself to the same benefits as Florida? I'm, gonna, I'm curious about this one, too. The whole salt deductions, state and local taxes. Right. So if you live in New Jersey, you probably know this. So the, uh, the Trump administration, Republicans in Congress, support the idea of, uh, look, 10 grand, that's it, across the nation. Your state income tax, your property tax, you put them together. Historically, we could deduct mm -hmm. them. Ten grand, that's the cap. In New Jersey, let's just say, for many, that does not cover even close to the, uh, the whole question of what we pay in state and local property taxes. Trump administration argues, and I'm not going to ask you to argue tax policy. Right. It's not what you're here for. But they'll say, wait a minute, the, the tax deal that we cut helps middle class folks. Now, all of a sudden, you're involved in this and saying, that you think this is what, unconstitutional, illegal? That's right. Because everything has to be a legal question for the AG's office to be involved. What's illegal about the administration saying, you can, we're going to cap it at 10 grand, your deductions? Well, it, it's unconstitutional, Steve. It violates the 16th Amendment and the 10th Amendment. How so? Explain this to so, us. There's, before there was a revenue code, there was always a provision. I mean the IRS revenue code. Right. Before there was you know, a federal income tax, you know, going before right. the, the codes. Before there was a federal income tax, we always had the ability to make these deductions at the local level. And for them to take away this deduction also takes money out of our state coffers, too. Our state should have the ability to, to also raise revenues through taxes to pay for the essential services here. And now, if we're not allowing this deduction, there's less money for the states to now use for, for the benefit of the states. That's you think a, it's punitive? That, that's a Tenth Amendment violation, and it is punitive because... You do. Because the conversations that were uncovered when, when this was being considered, when the SALT deduction was being considered, in, in addition to the unconstitutionality of it, right, because it's always been there, there was conversations with Mnuchin and others at, at the federal Mnuchin level. Mnuchin and Treasury uh, Mnuchin. Right. There were Mnuchin. Right. There were conversations where they said, uh, back and forth, not my words, theirs, that this was to penalize blue states. And, you don't really believe that. You don't believe that the Trump administration... And the, the leaders in the Trump administration having to do with fiscal policy said, let's pick the states that voted Democrat, let's stick it to them and give them the shaft when it comes to tax policy because they have high property taxes and they pay more income tax. You really believe that? It, it's, it's, not, it's not whether I believe it or not. It's what they said in the conversations that were taking place and in the, in the record that, that we've been able to develop. The case is, is pending in, in the Southern District of New York. 
this is what the, the conversation was in the background, that let's, you know, let's give it to the blue states. But respectfully, in the end, doesn't the IRS decide on this and not the courts? Well, it's, it, it's, the courts will decide right now. It's pen, there's a case pending in the Southern District of New York. Uh, they, the federal government filed their motion to dismiss. Our response is due, yeah. uh, and there'll be an argument. Give me 30 seconds on gun control. So it's, it's about gun safety. Way, every time we do a program, we're doing it right before Thanksgiving. We just pray there's not another uh, horrific incident involving guns and right. violence and killing. Right. We're, you know, from my role as chief law enforcement officer, it's about public safety. It's about law enforcement safety. So the, the bills that have been put forward by the Murphy administration, by this legislature, that give me the tools to go after uh, gun traffickers and straw purchasers, that give me the tools to, to, to go after those who are making these ghost guns, or selling the parts for these ghost guns or 3D ghost guns. Ghost guns are these partially completed guns. They're manufacturers who, who who advertise on the internet. We've sent them cease and desist letters. They sent partially completed assault weapons, and then they'll send you a link to YouTube on how to assemble them. They don't have a serial number. They don't have a way for us to trace it, and that makes it difficult for for if we recover them in gun crimes for us to trace them for law enforcement. But it puts guns in the hands of people without background checks. And so those tools are what we need as law enforcement officers to, to ensure public safety and law enforcement safety in this day and age. By the way, Steve Adubato here. Uh, we're talking to the Attorney General of, uh, of New Jersey, uh, Grabeer Graywall. I'm curious about this. The, the other question of community policing, mm -hmm. the whole question of, uh, of relations, we did a whole series. If you want to look on our website, our team will put it up right now. Uh, at steveautobato.org, uh, check out a series of programs we did on police minority relations. What is the role of the Attorney General's office in trying to improve relationships between police and the minority community? That's something that, that's very close to me. It's something that I think I could facilitate uh, as Attorney General. Uh, and let me just say this. I would like to spend my time on fighting violent crime, fighting the opioid crisis, which we talked about, and improving police community relations. I'm distracted by stuff coming out of Washington, and I need to stand up for New Jersey in those cases. In police community relations, there are divides between law enforcement and community all across the state and all across this country. And what we've done at the Attorney General's office is bring people together. We had our 21 county prosecutors hold four quarterly meetings this year on different topics ranging from how we investigate officer-involved shootings to bias offenses to immigration issues to the opioid crisis. Those are four community meetings in each county, and they're supposed to seed a conversation because it's easier to have a conversation in a church basement than by a yellow police tape. And if we could have that understanding and get to know each other in a, in a peaceful setting, when there is an unfortunate situation, I'm hopeful that there's trust between law enforcement and community so law enforcement can do their jobs and community could have confidence in law enforcement. We've got about a minute left. Uh, real quick, uh, legalizing marijuana, going to happen in the state? That's, that's down the street from me. That's the legislature. <laughs> that's not your area? That's, not, that's the legislature and the governor. If that's where they go, we'll be prepared to uh, enforce the laws uh, as they write them. One more quick one. Our, our team has been involved uh, with one of the entities in your office, the ins Office of the Insurance Fraud, trying to make people aware of right. insurance fraud. Still a high priority? High priority. What is it? Insurance fraud can be anything from, from schemes to submit false claims to Medicaid fraud to even bad doctors who are selling scripts. I mean, they're defrauding the insurance system. So yeah, there's a whole range of issues. Traditionally, it was in the auto industry, but now we're seeing it uh, everywhere. It's any sort of uh, submittal of a false claim to an insurance company, uh, and, and it's really organized, and it's costing taxpayers money. Attorney General, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And, um, Let's make sure we continue the conversation as the challenges continue, not just for your office, but for everyone in the state. And uh, we wish you all the best. Appreciate it. Thanks yeah. for having me. Stay right there. Yeah. This is State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. He's the Attorney General, and we'll be right back right after this.
To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. We're pleased to be joined by the mayor of uh, the great city of Patterson, Andre Sayer. Good to see you, Mayor. Thank you, Steve. And I like the way you emphasize great when you're announcing them. Is it, come on. First of all, you're walking around with the pin that says, <laughs> I love Patterson. Make the case. Why is it a great city? Well, we're the home of the Great Falls. We've got great food. And I believe we have a great future. Think about our history. We're the first planned industrial city in the country, founded by Alexander Hamilton. I very often say it's where Hamilton set the stage, a little play on the Broadway musical sure. that's popularized the first secretary of the Treasury. And I feel like because we have the diversity, we have our history, and we have the geography, we're not too far out from New York City, we can leverage those assets and ultimately make Patterson great. Patterson's got uh, 72 ethnic groups. We do. You are, You've done fact, your homework. You are the first Arab. I am. As a mayor. I am. Why is that significant? Well... Immigrants came to Patterson looking for work. Like I said before, we are a hub for industry. Unfortunately, we've lost a lot of that. But my mother came from Syria, Aleppo, which was hard hit by the right. war. My father's Lebanese, hard hit by another war right. in a different decade. So hardworking immigrants just wanted both, well, I have a brother. They wanted the two of us to excel in education and ultimately become responsible American citizens. Above everything, productive. What's the biggest... Uh... And by, let me put it this way. Is crime the number one issue in town? Public safety is, because if you want a stronger city, you have to have a safer city. And we've been able to reduce crime through public policy. We implemented the commercial curfew ordinance, which regulates hours of operation for establishments that are in Patterson's hotspots. Yeah. And we've reduced crime by over 70% in those areas. There's 18 different sections of the city that fall under the jurisdiction of this legislation. Does it, is it hard to bring in economic development, bring in people to put their money into Patterson while in fact they're going, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. This looks dangerous. Yeah, yeah. So other areas have happened. Newark's happening. Yep. Jersey City's happened. Patterson is about to happen. There is a tremendous level of interest from investors. We meet with big time real estate developers almost every day, my economic development director and I, and we're promoting the fact that Patterson's a place where you can invest, see a return on your investment, and it's a safe place because we're emphasizing the fact that crime is our number one priority. Let's talk education. Sure. The role of the state in Patterson right now does not exist, or does it? It still exists. We're transitioning. We've been under state control since 1991. Right. So we're at a point within the next two years, we'll wrest control from Trenton, and we'll determine our future and our fate. But respectfully, Mayor, to play devil's advocate, <laughs> one of the reasons, the biggest reason the state took over, the state said, hey, Patterson can't take care of its public schools. We That's have true. to come in because That's the true. state constitution of 47 said the state's ultimately yeah. responsible if a municipal government or if a school district, district can't handle it. I'm glad That's you what cited, happened. I'm glad you cited 47, thorough and efficient education. It's in the constitution. You're absolutely right. Unfortunately, at one point, Patterson became a patronage pit. And the fiscal Otherwise picture. known as a lot of the jobs in town were going to the Board of Education, going to local schools, as opposed to focusing on the kids? Correct. Unqualified individuals. And who suffers? Yes, the children in the classroom. But is the mayor, does the mayor have a lot of influence over a situation like that? If you have a superintendent imposed by the state, state has control, you're the mayor. What does that have to do with school Right. Systems? And as a matter of fact, there was a question on the ballot last week that said, would you prefer an appointed school board by the mayor or an elected school board? What do you like? 
Well, selfishly, of course, I'd like an appointed school. So you'd want to appoint those school board members in your community so that they're accountable to whom? You well, or the well, kids? Look, I think it worked in New York City with Michael Bloomberg. Mm. He took, took over and essentially he refashioned the school board. I personally would prefer to do that, but how about if there's another mayor that doesn't necessarily hold education as high as far as a priority is concerned? So I actually voted against it. I, I oh, prefer, is that true? I, I want to pres preserve democracy. Okay. And it was overwhelming. It was seven to one. It was defeated seven to one. Got it. Let me ask you this. Governor Murphy, his urban <clears throat> agenda and its impact on Patterson, describe it. All right. So Governor Murphy and I have a terrific relationship. And I've told him we want to write a success story in this city. And Governor, you're going to be a co-author. There's no Define question. Define what that means. As far as... Great pros. What does it mean okay, in terms here we of go. implementation? We have 100... And, <laughs> I like... You're good, Steve. You brought your A-game today. They haven't thrown me out yet at public television. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You're I almost digress. as hot as Eli last night, so... Uh, oh, now, and I was after a giant. <laughs> trust me, this is on tape, so there'll be a lot of losses I after that. Go ahead. Pick it up. $130 million in state tax credits. We have three catalytic projects, one at the Great Falls, one downtown, and one in South Patterson, which is an ethnic enclave. It's Arab, it's Turkish. I call it the halal meatpacking district. Mm. So we're going to leverage those tax credits. We're working with the EDA, Tim Sullivan. We're making Economic sure that... Economic Development yes, Authority. Sir, correct. So we're working closely with them. The governor, over a month ago, unveiled his Economic Development Plan. I was there... Big I on innovation. Correct. What does that mean in Patterson? It, well, okay, what does it mean in Patterson? I'm one of the 40 mayors around the world participating in the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative. And we're emphasizing innovation. We're emphasizing data. We're emphasizing that Patterson can become a smart city if we do everything right, which leads me to opportunity zones. Right, we opportunity be zones, the federal good initiative. Yes. Okay, so is Patterson one of the opportunity we zones? We have eight census tracts. Eight? Okay, you've got eight You're opportunities to get... Federal dollars into Patterson on these tracks to do what? Let's All right, so we're going to incentivize investment. Let's say, for instance, you're interested in one of these eight census tracks. There's an extended period of time where you don't pay capital gains taxes yep. so that you, you get will... a break as long as you're employing people. That's correct. So we want to incentivize investment in distressed cities. That's the terminology they right. use. In fact, I'm heading down to the League of Municipalities in Atlantic City. That's the first session I'm going to attend because my economic development director, my chief of staff, and I know that the Opportunity Zones could potentially unleash the economic engine or revive the economic engine in Patterson. Before I let you go, have you always had this level of energy? I had two cups of coffee this morning. <laughs> did you have the NJTV coffee? It's I did. awesome. It is incredible. <laughs> I got to admit, that's why I'm going to come back. I love you, but I'm going to come back for your coffee. Yeah, yeah. But, but I will tell you this. I'm optimistic. I'm enthusiastic about Patterson. It's the only home I've ever known. Yeah. It's where I brought my wife over. She's a transplant. She's a Brooklynite. We're raising our three children here. It's beautiful. So I want to make sure that Patterson is the next frontier and people know that. And I'm the cheerleader in chief for the city. Clearly you are. Mayor, make sure you come back and keep us I updated will. On, on how things move forward. You have an open invitation here at State Thank of you, Affairs. Steve. This Thanks so much. went very well. And before I go, it's only customary. If I love Patterson, I know you do too. I love this. Thank now, I'm you, born sir. and raised in Newark, but I will... Just show that up there. Do I have to disclose this to public television standards and practices and legal department? Thank you. Thank appreciate you. It. Well Thank done. You. Stay right it. there. Thank you. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 25 years of broadcast excellence. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at 2 Gateway. Funding has been provided by the law firm of Gibbons, P.C., St. Joseph's Health, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey.
Valley Bank, NJM Insurance Group, New Jersey Resources, International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825. And by these public-spirited organizations, individuals, and associations committed to informing New Jersey citizens about the important issues facing the Garden State. And by Employers Association of New Jersey. NJM Insurance Company has been serving New Jersey policyholders for more than 100 years. But just who are NJM's policyholders? They're the men and women who teach our children, the public sector employees who maintain our infrastructure, the workers who craft our manufactured goods, and New Jersey's next generation of leaders, the people who make our state a great place to call home. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered.